Hello and welcome to this episode of Disability Inc. My name is Jenna Rose Pope and I am Director of Communications here at Include NYC. And today we have the honor of speaking with Emily Ladau, who is a passionate disability rights activist, digital communications consultant, and avid blogger whose career began at age 10 when she appeared on Sesame Street to educate children about her life with a physical disability. She was born with Larson syndrome and hails from Long Island, New York. She manages online presence and communications for many disability-related organizations and agencies and is the editor-in-chief of the blog Rooted in Rights. She also has her own website called Words I Wheel By, which can be found at wordsiwheelby.com, where she talks about, and I quote, living life on wheels, fighting disability discrimination, and learning to accept and value her whole self. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. It's a pleasure. You came all the way from Long Island. I did. It was a long ride, but uh, <laughs> there's not much I wouldn't do for a podcast. Woo! <laughs> all right. So I guess we'll start with the basics. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in the disability rights movement? You mean after you just read all that about me? <laughs> well, I'm sure there's plenty more. <laughs> so it's always strange to actually think about myself as having any kind of role in the disability rights movement. I guess I still sometimes picture myself as just this one person and it's very strange to me when other people ask me what I do um, because I think that there are so many people who contribute so much more than I do but um, I've also learned to stop putting myself down in that way and start acknowledging that I am trying to work my way into the larger context of the disability rights movement and become a leader. I think it's happening slowly, I hope. Um, But I do a lot in terms of writing and public speaking. Um, I try to speak to a wide range of audiences about everything from communicating about disability to disability and language to being disabled and also being other minorities because I am Jewish, so I often talk about the intersection of the two minorities. Um, In addition to my public speaking, I write for several outlets, but I try to focus on moving from disability-focused outlets to mainstream outlets because my priority is getting outside of the bubble that we're constantly in when we talk about disability, and so that's a a big priority for me, is really getting to the people who aren't hearing the messages that we're talking about. And then I also do a lot of work sort of behind the scenes where my goal is to amplify the voices of other people. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Rooted in Rights earlier, so that is a full, well-rounded initiative that focuses on storytelling and amplifying the voices of the disability community in an authentic way. So it's people with disabilities telling their own stories. So and in, in what, what platforms, may I ask? Yeah, absolutely. So it is video and it is blogging. Okay. Those are our two primary platforms. I'm particularly invested in the blog because I'm the editor-in-chief. <laughs> People tell me I'm kind of a difficult editor sometimes, but I, I, yeah. hope, I hope lovingly. <laughs> um, but the whole point of Rooted in Rights is to give the disability community the power to tell their own stories rather than letting other people take control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So 
for me, when people pitch me a blog post, it's their story. I don't do anything to rewrite or retell their story. I'm here to help them shape their story. So it's all about focusing on unique perspectives from people who often have multiple marginalized identities in addition to disability Mm -hmm. and taking them or taking their story and putting it out into the world in an accessible way. And I'm talking about accessible both in terms of actually accessible, like captioning and audio description, Mm -hmm. but also accessible in terms of plain language, you know, not very convoluted and difficult and also just easy to find. It's just right on social media. So that's really what my work is all about. That's awesome. Because especially in this space, it tends to be um, a thing where other people's stories are told for them or by other people. So, I mean, that's yes. an important part of the disability right. That happens all the time. It's kind of frustrating because I think that the voices of the disability community need to be heard, and they're the most underrepresented. But people are so focused on talking over us, talking for us. I don't even care if you talk with us, but just don't overpower what it is that we're trying to tell you. Like they say, nothing about us without us. Exactly. Awesome. That sounds like really meaningful work. Um... So, I have to disagree with you. Uh, I understand not seeing yourself as a leader necessarily. You're also quite young, which is awesome. Um, But you seem to have gotten dragged into this sort of career, or I don't know, dragged, you tell me, (laughs) when you were were 10. So, how did that opportunity come about? So, uh, you know, I should comment first that the more I'm thinking about how I introduce myself, the more I realize that I'm always the first one to be self-deprecating. Sure. Um, And I don't ever let anybody else get away with that. Mm. But it's still strange to me to to call myself a leader. But the reality is that because I was born with my disability, I've been doing this my whole life pretty much in one way or another. So when I was 10, or actually 9, I (laughs) went to summer camp, uh, Southampton Fresh Air Home, and the talent agent from Sesame Street called the camp and said, hey, we're looking for kids with disabilities to audition for a part. Do you have anyone to recommend? So I, being the loud, bubbly, and possibly obnoxious (laughs) presence at camp, um, they recommended me for the audition. So I did the first audition, got called back for the second one, and ended up getting the part. Um, So cool. Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was a whirlwind. I was in fourth grade when I got the part, and fifth grade when I was doing the filming. Yeah. Um, it was only for one season. It was right around September eleventh, uh, two thousand one. So, um, they cut the the bu- the budget for public broadcasting right. right around there. So they went back to the main characters. Um, but. During the time that I was on there, I realized that some little kid from the middle of Long Island can educate other kids about living with a disability and explaining what that's like and doing it in a fun way and not a scary way. And so the fact that I was given that platform so young, I think, really showed me the potential that advocacy actually has. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> hey, it's funny how serendipity works. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of it going on there. 
Um, so, to sort of segue into that, uh, what was it like for you growing up with a disability and learning to advocate for yourself? I think that my story is different than many people because my mother also has a physical disability. She has mm-hmm. the same disability that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Larson Syndrome. It's a genetic joint and muscle disorder. Um, so having that literal built-in blood relative role model is something that taught me how to be an advocate because I saw my mother advocating before I even really understood the concept of it. And for that matter, um, you know, even though my dad does not share the same disability, um, I watched him as well, you know. Um, his daughter, he was obviously very invested and <laughs> advocating for me as well. And so seeing the two of them speak up showed me that I'm also supposed to speak up when I need something. And I guess I've always just been kind of loud and willing to say what's on my <laughs> mind anyway. So it was sort of a natural fit. Um, yeah, so growing up was positive for me and that I had somebody who showed me the way when it came to advocating but also I had to kind of carve my own path in a lot of ways um I did go to mainstream public school and I was the only kid with a visible disability in my grade uh so that while I'm I'm absolutely all for inclusion there is that feeling sometimes of being singled out or being the only one who can't do things, um, you know, and when I was in elementary school, it, I think, wasn't as much of a big deal, all this talk of inclusion, and I think that's largely because the internet was not yet a primary way to share information, and so other people who were proponents and advocates for inclusion, they weren't all finding communities online in terms of best practices. I think a lot of people were just figuring it out. So I think that I had to pave my own way in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and say what was okay and what wasn't. And there were a lot of bumps in the road. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, on the whole, I think that all of the experiences that I had growing up all of the times that I did advocate for myself, but also all of the missteps when I should have or when I just didn't know that I was supposed to, um, partially due to age, partially due to, you know, you don't want to contradict authority. Um, I mean, that doesn't seem to be like a natural uh, component of being a (laughs) 10-year-old. Yeah, that's kind of the problem is when you feel something is wrong, um, I don't think that kids get enough credit for knowing when something doesn't quite feel right and yet if you try to push back in any way you're just sort of seen as a fussy kid and a rebel Mm. and not somebody who is genuinely expressing a problem that they're experiencing because of a lack of inclusion sure yeah absolutely and a stigma against age yeah what that means um so just to circle back a little bit to it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, not necessarily having the, the support community that is sort of inherent in our technological advances today, the internet and such. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what role you think um, that plays in the disability community? Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of using social media. I think that 
it is a way for other disabled people to find a community that may often be lacking within their actual localities and surroundings. I think it's a way to exchange information. I think it's a way to advocate for whatever is important to you at the time, whether it's policy, uh, practices. Um, I think that it's just a great meeting place for people who may not necessarily have access to things like transportation, may not have the economic privilege to get certain places. Um, Without social media, I think that the disability community wouldn't be as much of a community. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. I mean, for all the uh, criticisms that come along with, um, you know, website and constantly being connected, <laughs> of which there still <laughs> exist, um, you know, there are many benefits as well. Oh, yeah. Not that I don't need to turn it off every <laughs> once in a while. Absolutely. <laughs> in fact... Um, you know, there are absolutely negatives that come with social media, cyberbullying, and um, just generally being awful to people is a a real problem and something that I wish didn't come with the territory, but unfortunately it does. So it's really, it's a matter of striking a balance. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's something comforting in that sort of anonymity that comes with just surfing the web, but then also it kind of allows people to say things that they normally wouldn't say face-to-face, and it's, yeah. Yeah, although if there's one thing that I do not have, it is anonymity, because uh, as I have <laughs> learned, all you need to do is type my name into Google, and right. nobody else has my name, literally. <laughs> so um, there are no secrets or escaping it when it comes to to my name so anonymity is not a, a privilege that I have but well, I think you I think you forfeited that when you became a rock star on Sesame Street <laughs> that was yeah totally decision you were aware of when you were 10 but anyway oh yeah <laughs> um so can you tell us what you believe the difference between being an activist and an advocate is yeah so I often think that people don't recognize their a difference and use them interchangeably and I don't think that the difference is in any way a negative thing but I think Mm -hmm. that advocating comes down to speaking out Mm -hmm. and activism often comes down to actively trying to do something Mm -hmm. about an issue so you can be an advocate for yourself you can speak up for what you need But activism, I often think, takes a larger context. Um, When you're being an activist, it often pertains to an issue that impacts not just you, but Mm -hmm. impacts everybody. And I think that advocacy works the same way. However, Mm -hmm. I think that activism is taking it to the next level, whether it's Mm -hmm. directly getting in touch with policymakers and actively asking for change um, or whether it's being an activist in terms of trying to get a change made to a program in a school um, and you're directly advocating for that. So I think that advocating is part of activism. Sure. But I think that activism is perhaps more active if that makes sense. It does, actually. It's built right in there. So yeah. so all advocates 
Wait, all activists are advocates, but not all advocates are necessarily activists. I would say so, and I'm sure that not everybody will agree with me. <laughs> um, but the reason that I differentiate is because I think that activism is often more of an on-the-ground approach. Sure. But also, that does not mean, um, and this is something that I'm huge about making sure people know, um, there's a term called slacktivism, and oh. I think it gets thrown around a lot, and it's uh, accusations of being a slacktivist because you just posted something on social media and didn't do anything else about it. And I think there's this rampant problem in the disability community where too many people are treated like slacktivists mm -hmm. for posting on social media, but perhaps not taking any sort of direct action. Sure. And I would argue that that is so incredibly discriminatory because <laughs> you don't know what a person may or may not be able to do at any right. given time. You just don't know what a person's capacity is, and it's not for you to decide. Um, so, Can you give us an example of like maybe yeah. what is meant by do more, for instance? Yeah, so I would say that there are people who assume that you are only a hardcore activist if you are out there protesting something mm. in person, in public, holding up signs, getting in people's faces. Mm. And that's great if you have the physical capacity for that and the emotional capacity while we're at right. it. Yeah. Um, but it's not always possible. And so I think that we need to recognize that activism comes in many forms. Yes. I still think that there's a difference between activism and advocacy mm -hmm. because activism is taking some kind of next step but I don't think that if it's just on social media that it's being a slacker. I don't ever want right. people to think that because they can or cannot do something at any given time means that they're being a slacker. Right. It also depends on, on what type of social media posts. I mean, it's just sort of blatantly saying all social media posts are not right. relevant or right. aren't right. active, which is not the case. Yeah. That's a good determination. I like that. Um, so, segueing seamlessly right into <laughs> accessibility, um, which actually is a related point, because the slacktivism you're talking about, you know, some people, oftentimes people who are posting on social media don't, are, don't have access to the sort of protests that other people would call them slacktivists yeah. around. So, um, how do you personally define accessibility? Yeah, I think it actually is a, a good segue because of the fact that not all types of activism are accessible to everyone but right. then again nothing is accessible to everyone right. uh, regardless of disability sure. so um, I would define accessibility as offering an environment that fosters the most opportunities for inclusion mm -hmm. for people of all types of abilities um, and that's not a euphemism. I genuinely mean all types of abilities. So sure. whether you identify as having a disability or not, mm -hmm. um, if that environment fosters an opportunity for your participation, it is accessible to you. Yeah. So I want to write that down. <laughs> Send it to Merriam-Webster. <laughs> 
And I, I think that we have such rigid ideas of accessibility. Yeah. So people say, oh, yeah, you know, we have a, a sign language interpreter. Or, mm-hmm. or, oh, sure, I have a Braille copy of that. Sure. But that's, that's really not even remotely the extent of what accessibility right. means. It changes depending on the person, depending on the context, sure. the environment, the situation. And then, of course, you have people who say, okay, well, you just made it sound really complicated, so why even bother? But yeah. the reality is that accessibility is a process. Sure. So it's more... I hate to be so cliche, but it's the journey, not the destination. Ultimately, the destination is great because it's full accessibility, but that requires working with people. And especially in an education context, accessibility comes by listening to what it is that your students actually need. Yeah. And that may be different for everyone. And that may not be large print textbooks or captioned media it might be something more. It might be figuring out that they work better in small groups than in a big group. It might be recognizing that they're not able to navigate in a particular area of the classroom, so you need to make it a little bit more open or a little bit more welcoming to perhaps a mobility device. So it's really very person-dependent and something that I think the world needs to evolve a lot more oh, on. I was actually having a conversation about accessibility the other day, and I think that the typical um, perception is, you know, to people who are not necessarily in this space, is that accessibility is like a ramp to get into a room. Yes. But you can build that ramp. I mean, that's that's the problem you can fix with money. You can throw money at that and... Get, which is definitely important, because also the law, <laughs> although yeah. it's not followed, as we know very well. <laughs> Hello, New York City. Um, but why would you want to get into that room if the people inside the room don't have a positive perception or aren't welcoming or don't consider your full humanity? So, like, you know, it's there's two parts to accessibility. Yeah. There's, there's the, the physical component and also the social component. Yeah, it's so multifaceted. And the social component also applies to the Internet as well because accessibility is also very much a digital thing mm-hmm. in terms of cognitive accessibility and using plain language or accessibility in terms of making it friendly for screen readers, yeah. for people who are blind or visually impaired. Um, so I think that we have much too narrow a definition of accessibility yeah. and we need to widen it significantly. Absolutely. And as it is such a complex thing. I, I like how you said it's it's the journey because we're certainly not there even, you know, in terms of physical accessibility and we certainly have a long way to go yes. in terms of social accessibility. <laughs> but, you know, any progress is good progress and, and we'll get there. Maybe, Absolutely. Hopefully. I hope. <laughs> we'll take the uh, glass half full approach today. <laughs> exactly. We'll get there. All right. Um... So, uh, speaking of accessibility, I'm just going to try to to fudge the segues Go ahead. and see what happens. It's all it's all disability related, right, so yeah. really it's Thank all you. fine and totally connected. Thank you so much. <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> um, so, from a disability standpoint, I guess this this has to do with accessibility, um, the social aspect of accessibility, and part of that I think is. Hearing, and this goes back to 
what you do with Rooted in Rights, um, having people with disability and their voices heard instead of having them spoken for and things like that. Um, so from a disability standpoint, what kind of voices do you think the public needs to hear more from? So even as we're having this conversation, I'm very, very conscious of the ways in which my privilege intersect with mm -hmm. the fact that I'm a disabled woman. Um, so when it comes to my work with Rooted in Rights and just my work in general, I try to focus on representing voices that are from multiply marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. And I think we ignore that a lot when it comes to talking about disability. We seem to assume that if we're bringing disability into the conversation that we're doing enough. And granted, mm -hmm. that's doing something because we don't talk right. about disability enough. Mm -hmm. But I think that we forget that disability is really one of the only minority identities, if you will. I suppose that's assuming you consider it an identity, characteristic, aspect, whatever it is you consider it, sure. um, that can be part of anybody's life. So it does not matter what other identities you have. Mm -hmm. You may be disabled. You may become disabled at any point in your life. Um, not a threat, just a reality. Right. Sure. You know, uh, so... I think that we need to get to a point where we're realizing that disability can belong to anybody yeah. and we need to be hearing from the voices of people who are already marginalized by society in some way mm -hmm. and then also marginalized for their disability on top of that. Yeah. Um, so Rooted in Rights tries to do that. Uh, and I think that we still need to do better, and I recognize that. Um, oftentimes, we focus on representing one area of diversity, and we tend to neglect other areas. And I don't think that's exclusive to just us. I think that's a, a problem that everybody has. They sure. latch on to race and disability or gender identity and disability. Yes. Um, just as two examples. So... You know, it's it's a, a process. I think that's kind of the common theme here is that everything is a process. Yeah, absolutely. But we're we're working on it, and I hope that other people will start working on it. At least the listening part. Right, right now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. When you say you work, I mean, do you not that I don't doubt your ability to fix the entire problem, but again, it's <laughs> such a <laughs> well. You got you know. Again, I'm gonna just throw it in there, 10, Sesame Street, moving on. Um, <laughs> you've got plenty of time. <laughs> I have faith in you. But it, it is complex, and I think that's really super important. I mean, the listening and, and, and the importance of he having these different voices, as you say, in the public and social media and, and available um, is because education and exposure are so important. Um, I think that so much fear is involved in this whole thing. And if people oh, yeah. don't know what the experience looks like, that that's what makes it so quote-unquote scary, which actually it's not. Yeah, I have a little bit of a, a catchphrase. I know it, it's silly to say that, but um, I always say if you want the world to be accessible to the disability community, then you need to make the ideas and concepts surrounding disability accessible yes. to the world. Yes. So it's really a two-way street. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, and it, frankly, people don't have the option to listen if there's nothing to listen Absolutely. to. Absolutely. So yay for rooted in rights. <laughs> um, so there is sometimes tension, and feel free to disagree with me, um, between people with disabilities who are active in the disability rights movement and parents of people with disabilities. Um, where do you see these two groups aligned and where do you see them differ? I do not disagree with you in the slightest. I have witnessed this tension. I have been part of this tension. I don't personally experience this tension in my own life, but literally only because my mom also has a disability. Sure. I mean, I think I'm honestly spoiled in that way. Other people would be like, oh, it's so sad. You both have disabilities. But oh, I'm Lord. like, no, it's great. <laughs> Nobody understands me better. Um, but... This tension is so real, and it's because of both parties. Yeah. I think that we both need to take responsibility that we're not meeting in the middle. Mm -hmm. So parents are very, very quick a lot of times, and I should clarify, non-disabled parents usually yeah. are super quick to talk about their kids um, without any sort of consent, to sort of yeah. put all their dirty laundry online, mm -hmm. to tell stories in ways that make sense to them but don't necessarily align with what their kid might want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think they often overstep bounds, um, give a lot of meaning to helicopter parents, if you will, yes. get really, really, really in there mm -hmm. and don't give their kid a chance to breathe. Um, so then you have disabled people, often disabled adults, who fight back and say, you know, are you respecting your kid's privacy? Right. Are you respecting your kid's autonomy? Are you recognizing that they're a whole independent human being? Whatever independent means to them. You know, are you giving them the chance to communicate? And I see it from both sides. Um, as a disabled person, I would be incredibly frustrated if somebody was doing the talking for me. Um, and people might say, okay, so what if my child is nonverbal, that doesn't matter. You know, if right. there's any possible way for your child to provide consent, they yes. need to provide consent. Agreed. And if there is no way for them to provide consent because they're cognitively not able to, mm -hmm. maybe have a little common sense and think like, would I do this if my kid was not disabled? Would right. I still share this information? Sure. So the tensions, they're, they're real. Yeah. Um, and I have been frustrated so many times by parents who seem to not recognize when they're vastly overstepping their bounds mm -hmm. and talking down about the disability community. But at the same time, I think that disabled people often go on the attack. Sure. And so they're just ready to write off every parent of a disabled kid mm -hmm. as being bad. It. It's just, you're a parent, you're bad, forget it, we don't want you, we don't want your help, we don't want your allyship, we want nothing from you. And Sort of with the assumption that they're yeah. going to be like the sort of parent who's... Yeah, and that's just not how you get anything done. That sure. just causes more division, and I think that um, it's time to meet in the middle, and that's dependent on both groups, if you will. Um, you know... Parents of disabled people recognizing that they're not the experts on the disability experience. Mm -hmm. They're the experts on being parents of someone who's yes. experiencing disability. Um, very different. 
And then, you know, people of the disability community recognizing that parents can be valuable allies. Mm -hmm. It's okay to write off the ones who repeatedly, you know, violate their child's privacy or generally talk down to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But some people just don't quite know, especially because maybe they haven't interacted with someone who's an adult with a disability. Maybe this is literally their first experience with disability and they're just doing the best that they can. So it's, it's about meeting in the middle. And I always get a little hate because it feels like I'm defending, you know, disabled parents and parents of kids with disabilities Mm -hmm. rather like, Oh, you're defending the enemy, but we Mm -hmm. just can't call them the enemy. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's sort of a blanket statement, a little bit, tiny bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get so mad at people who are like, oh, you can't paint everyone with the same brush, you know, but usually the people who are saying that are the ones who are actually terrible. Um, <laughs> Good point, yes. But I think that there is truth to that statement, despite the fact that it doesn't usually apply to the people who are saying it. Yes. I think that that's a dynamic that a lot of people who are not in the space are not necessarily aware of. And again, like most of these things, it's complex, but definitely something that deserves conversation. Yeah, I mean, basically, the way a lot of disabled people see it is that it's us against the entire world. Sure. And I basically feel that way too. Right. But I'm also willing to try to fix it so that I don't have to feel that way. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. Just not necessary. And actually, that was running through my mind regarding young people with disabilities or people with disabilities in general who come up against parents who, like you said, you know, they can often be, you know, terrible if they continue to not listen to you. But as you had mentioned earlier about um, how you felt like you've had to advocate for yourself your whole life and that's just sort of an experience and you didn't really necessarily think of it that way. I mean, it seems to be that there is some degree of advocacy for people with disabilities, even in regards to their parents. So like, hey, this is who I am. This is not what I need. You need to, so it's, I mean, which yeah. which can be a teenage thing anyway, but it's way more complex than that. Oh yeah. Um, and there's no denying that it's exhausting emotional labor. Sure. It really is. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't want to be an advocate and you just want to chill. But that doesn't always happen. Um, So I guess that's a reality that I recognize and try to capitalize on in a positive way. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Thank you. Coffee helps. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's just add to your roster of awesome past accomplishments. Um, And I love the phrasing. The last piece that you wrote in the New York Times, (laughs) now for something completely different, uh, was about disclosing your disability in a dating situation. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about disability disclosure in general and also then in the dating situation? Yeah, so disability disclosure is interesting for Mm -hmm. me because if you meet me in person, um, my disability discloses itself right away. But if you connect with me online, then whether or not I disclose my disability is my choice. Um, and that comes in a dating capacity that comes in a work capacity. So if you're applying for jobs, things like that, um, you know, (sighs) 
I used to be very hesitant about disclosing my disability, um, both for employment and dating purposes, because it has bit me in the butt, for lack of a better way to put it, Mm -hmm. multiple times. Um, For employment, you know, I was applying for a teaching assistant position after I graduated college. Um, It was at a school for people with developmental disabilities, Mm -hmm. and when I was on the phone, I mentioned something about my using a wheelchair, and suddenly the interview was pretty much over. So, you know, that was a hard lesson to learn, and that was before I began to develop a disability-focused resume where Mm -hmm. I would say that my disability is almost an asset to me now. Um, I would say disability can be an asset to anybody, but for me, um, it's probably pretty obvious, or at least you can make some kind of assumption that I may have a disability based on my resume. And for some people, um, that can be difficult or potentially frustrating because they may experience discrimination. They may not get called back for jobs, but the field that I'm in, Mm -hmm. I'm in activism, I'm in advocacy. Mm -hmm. uh, So it's become a a positive thing for me, but I recognize it's not like that for everybody. Um, And then for dating, I mean, forget it. Like the second you disclose, people are just like, oh, the wheelchair is a deal breaker and I want nothing to do with that because, you know, if you sit down, then, you know, you must not be a full person. So I don't want to date you. So disclosure is so tough because no matter what decision you make, you can't win. Right. You know, if you tell somebody up front, they may reject you out of hand. If you tell somebody later on down the road, they may think that you're deceiving them. Right, right. It's so tough. Um... And I, after all these years, and I say all these years like I'm so wise, but I'm only 26, but I don't have the answer. <laughs> Fair. I mean, online dating seems to be, I mean, this is personal assessment, but I think it's more reality. It's just that there's so many issues with disclosure and privacy and, and even being female on, on a platform oh, like yeah. that, which is sort of like speaking of intersection, you know, there's a lot of, of, of issues there and it just sort of seems like so many more added layers because then as you mentioned you know the, oh you've been deceiving me it's like well you know I have every right to disclose whichever piece of myself I have to you you didn't tell me that your favorite color is navy blue yeah it's, <laughs> yeah why are you holding out on me right come on you liar like <laughs> I mean, granted, it's slightly less important. No, I know what you mean. That's of your life, but is it, I mean, it, it's not dissimilar, and so it's just... Yeah, so it took me a long time to get to the point, um, and this was what my New York Times piece was about, mm-hmm. where I initially hid my disability and then kind of waited to drop it as a bomb on people. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not great. That was met with very mixed results. Uh, And I can't totally blame people because sometimes it was my approach because we'd just be having a conversation and then I'd be like, well, I think this conversation is going well enough that I should probably tell you that I have a disability and I use a wheelchair and, you know, it's no big deal, but I just wanted to let you know. And then people would be like, whoa. Um, So, like, that's partially on me, but also, like, it's on the rest of society because why is it a big deal? Right, exactly. But... You know, I could handle it better. So um, I have since 
evolved in that it is right up front and center on my dating profiles. And uh, it's up to you whether you would like to engage with me having that knowledge. Um, I do use humor, you know, Mm -hmm. so I say like something about... I know that you might think it's weird that I experience the world in a seated position or, you know, um, and then there's like one question, what are the things you can't live without? So I say, oh, the invention of the wheel. And, (laughs) you know, then on like the shorter dating profiles, it'll say uh, something like I live life on wheels or something like that. So I try to keep it light. Um, And I think that doing that has finally taught me that disability will help you separate people out so don't don't wait just be upfront I know that's not for everybody it took me a while to come to that conclusion but being open has helped me find the guys who are you know open-minded and accepting I'm not saying they're saints like you're not a great person just because you go on a date with someone in a wheelchair but I mean they are guys after all yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) Separate podcast. Right. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, gosh. Anyway. Dating with Emily and Jenna Rose. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if the world's ready. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I I also think that, you know, like you said, sometimes you just don't want to have to advocate for yourself. Sometimes you just want to, like, be. And even though you have to put that up, the sort of the effort up front, which is not necessarily comfortable and not fair that you have to do that. I mean, you don't have to do it, obviously, but I think that it might sort of let you just have it out there instead of having to, like, you know, wait for that emotional bomb to, to drop on you. You talked about dropping That's one on them. honestly so true because it would get to the point where I would build up my anxiety. Mm-hmm. I would get attached to the idea of talking to a person. Yeah. Then I would throw all this at them. And then I'd be like, do you have any questions? And, um, it's intense. That's just, yeah, it's for a lot. Of you. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, no, mostly for them. Like I needed to chill. I recognize that. <laughs> so, um, I, like that I have learned the hard way, but also the real way. That's how life sure. works. And yeah. so, Now, um, I, I mean, I will tell people, you know, if they have questions, they can ask, Mm -hmm. but I'm not like, any questions? Write me a list. Send it to me. By tomorrow. (laughs) You have by end of day tomorrow. (laughs) End of close of business. (laughs) Yeah, people love deadlines when they're getting to... Yeah, it's a learning process. Um, but on the whole, I think that disclosure for me has been freeing because it lets me let go of the advocate part of myself. Right. And just be my whole self. And uh, if you want to take it, take it. If you want to leave it, leave it. That's fine. Because sometimes I want to leave you. So. (laughs) Boom. My (laughs) job. There it is. And on that note. (laughs) Leave it to me to end on that. (laughs) No, I like it. It actually worked out nicely. So just to recap, we have been speaking with Emily Liddell. Um, and I'm going to plug her fabulous website one more time. It's www.wordsiwheelby.com. Um, and also, we are speaking to you from Include NYC. And if you have any questions, 
about this podcast. If you want to get in touch with Emily, we can connect you. Um, we also have a free helpline uh, in case you have questions about your or your child's disability in general. Please feel free to give us a call at 212-677-4660 or you can visit our website at www.includenyc.org. Thanks so much, Emily, for joining us. Thank you for having me.